addition to our study this morning um, in Genesis 1, we're doing a special uh, on God and government. As we transition, I want to show you something that uh, we've been invited to participate in, and I want you to uh, consider. See if I can show it on the screen behind me. We're calling for a congregational meeting. This next Sunday, we'll meet as a congregation and discuss whether we want to include Grace Global Radio as a mission supported by this church family. Grace Global Radio is a small operation, but it's, I believe, in, I think they said something like 117 countries. It's a, it's a man and his wife that are mainly the workers in it. They work it part-time. Uh, he's a radio man by day and a radio gospel uh, infrastructure guy at night, and um, they have a small board. Their doctrinal statement aligns with ours very closely, and their interests and emphases are our interests and emphases, and they're the only thing like it. It's internet radio, and so it's, uh, it's, there's an app for it. You can get it on multiple different platforms, and uh, some of my f- best friends who are pastors are uh, preachers on Grace Global Radio. They have regular shows, and you can listen to expositional Bible teaching from a dispensational and free grace perspective all day long, and I think something like 117 countries. Um, Preston City Bible Church has been, uh, in, well, I've been invited to uh, host a radio show with Grace Global Radio to get the word of the gospel out uh, beyond our borders here, and um, I've gladly accepted the name of the show they're going to build from our teaching in this church is called Equipping the Saints, and I'm really excited about that. What they do is they take archive materials from uh, churches, from pastors that agree to join with them, um, and they edit the content for time, and uh, sometimes they'll break a message into two if they have to. Uh, they really want 55 to one hour long messages, 55 minutes to one hour long. And uh, I do too. I think that's great. We'll have to trim down some of the hour 15s. Um, <laughs> but um, sometimes I just look at y'all and I think about those seats and your poor backs. And it's 1210 and I just say, I don't care what, how long this message goes. We need to, we need to spare the saints. And uh, all the suffering that you endure for the Lord is certainly going to be remembered. But my point is that um, I'd like to do a congregational meeting this next Sunday uh, to consider this this ministry, this nonprofit or parachurch ministry, like many of the other things we're involved with, with Chafer Seminary and uh, CEF. If CEF is our inroads to evangelism uh, in the elementary schools, and if Chafer Seminary is our seminary, then Grace Global Radio is definitely our radio station. And... um, it's uh, all the proceeds for all their offerings and everything go into generating content, and uh, it's a very low overhead operation. They would like to go uh, have uh, a worker go full-time in this ministry, and they need support. They never advertise. They never ask for money in their radio shows. It's all, uh, it's all the work that they're doing. It's just it's their ministry. The way this, therefore, would be supported is by churches partnering with them and individuals giving to them. So I thoroughly recommend Grace Global Radio, and I would challenge us as a church family 
to consider them as missionaries. The way we take on a missionary for our church, by constitution, is we call a congregational meeting a week in advance. We meet for a few minutes after church, we discuss it, and then we vote yes or no on the, the taking on of a missionary. The franchise in our church is designed um, to reflect what we read in Acts, that the church selected, the church agreed, the church sent. It's very often uh, something you read in Acts. So we believe in the biblical doctrine of congregational rule, or I should say congregational government. We also believe in elders and deacons. And so um, when there is the opportunity for you to, uh, to choose, we certainly want you to exercise that franchise. Um, and I'm thankful for uh, 2007, what was it, in March of 07, this church voted that they wanted me to come be the pastor. You wanted me to come pastor this church. And um, we believe that is pretty close to how Acts describes that people are working as a church family in Concord. And that congregational impulse has given us the Baptist movement, which has expressed the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ on every continent and every nation um, since before Roger Williams came here to Rhode Island, but in that same era. The point I'm making is that you have the franchise. We'd like you to exercise it. If you're members of our church, we want you to come and vote your conscience. And my challenge is that this would be a good ministry for us to support. Um, I don't know of a better way to be part of getting the word out in a broader way. So Grace Global Radio, you can check it out and grab the app. There's an app for it for you to check it out on your phone. Um, Andy's on there. Andy Woods is on there all the time and um, several other pastors that I work with. Andy's the president of Chafer Seminary. Um, the, um, and I'm an adjunct professor and, and other. I do more things than that. Um, the, um, one of my co-pastors with Camp Arete is Brad Maston out in Fort Collins, Colorado. He's uh, one, of the, one of the pastors on Grace Global Radio, and, and several others that um, are dear friends, Clay Ward and uh, Tullahoma Bible Church in Tennessee. And so um, it's kind of like a Bible conference of, uh, of people that if I could have a New England Bible conference in October, if we could had a facility to host it, I would do it in October, and we would bring them, these people here, and they would teach us a, you know, a series, um, and we would do this every year. Again, if God provides a building that we could do such a thing in, we would do that. But until then, you could get them on Grace Global Radio, and I'm glad that they've flattered they invited us to be part of it. All right. Um, if you'll turn in Genesis chapter 1, I think we learn a lot about what's coming in our, for our country, what's happening in our nation right now. And I do want to talk a little bit about today about... Um, the big decisions that we're facing as a nation. You know, it's, all, it's always said that this election is the most important election in all, all of our country's history. They always, we always say that. And um, uh, it's always true because we're always in a, some sort of crazy nosedive decline. And I think in Genesis 1... You and I see something in God's design of man that sets us apart from all of nature, gives us our purpose and our value. And when man denies his creator or his connection to the creator, he is denying his essential value. Now, he doesn't lose his value, but he denies it. And it's in Genesis chapter 1. 
In verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule. That is foundational to understanding what you are. What is a human being? A human being is someone made in the image of God for the purpose of rule. How do you define the image of God? What is, what is the essential makeup of the image of God? Theologians debate it. It's an interesting question. What sets you apart from the lower creatures, from the animals? It's not just the size of your brain. There's an immaterial component, the spirit of man that's different from the animal kingdom. And I consider, contend that, that part of your being God's image or bearing God's image is that immaterial spirit of man. I believe in the component view, that you're different from the animals because you alone as humans are made in God's image. But I think that the other side of this debate is also valid. What makes you God's image bearer is that you were designed to rule as a representative of him. You were designed to be his representative ruler over that which he entrusts to you. Your design as a steward of anything that God entrusts to you is part of what it means to bear God's image, to make them in their image and likeness, for God to make us in, uh, in his image and likeness is for God to say that I'm going to equip you with the necessary equipment to do the job that I have of delegated rule. And that rule extends to whatever has been entrusted to you. And this is such a big deal. Because God is in charge of the distribution of that which he owns for delegation to those to whom he delegates. He alone distributes. The problem, beloved, with the socialist agenda of redistributing the things because the problem is material, the problem of the socialist agenda is it denies God's right to the distribution. If we realign, for example, the testing so that we get a more equitable result of the measurement of intelligence of those tested, we haven't changed the fact that God has given more to some and less to others. You've just changed the label. You've changed the way you've measured it. You've changed the way you've talked about it. You haven't changed the facts. And there are different forms of intelligence. People are different, differently abled in different ways. What I'm trying to illustrate here is it's God's to give. Denying God's existence, of course, we'll try to figure out a better distribution. A better distribution. And here's what you do if you have. In a biblical worldview, if you have that which has been distributed from the Creator for you to rule over, you praise Him and you seek His face and you try to rule with it with the attitude he th you think He wants you to have. And you do it as worship to Him, whatever's been entrusted to you. That's a relationship with God. And the material or the, the, the stewardship that you've been given, whatever it is, the people, the, the privileges, whatever you have been given by this divine distribution, 
you use it for his glory, and you honor him with worship as your life and how you manage your resources. For the have-not, for the target of the Marxist project, stirring up the masses to rebel against the minority, empowering the, what did he call it? The proletariat to take down the bourgeoisie through covetousness. They don't have, I don't have and they have. I should have what they have. Covetousness and ultimate theft, two commandments in the Ten Commandments. You can't, you can't get socialism out of the Bible. And in this project, the goal is to, in denial of God, rearrange the distribution. But as one who has not, what you do is you look at your creator and you tell the truth about what you have in him. And you remember what James says about the poor in James 4. They have been called to be rich in faith and to inherit the coming kingdom. The only way there can be a socialist or Marxist project out of a Genesis 1 world is if you deny the creator and your essential value as his image bearer. If you think that the stuff is all that there is, and so I need to get my cut, instead of the creator is, is really all that there is, and everything that he's made is for him and about him. In Hebrews chapter 1, we're told that Jesus is the heir of all things, the one to inherit all things. We're told in Romans chapter 8 that you are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed you suffer with him, so that you, be glor- so that you may be glorified together with him. In other words, to be, to be Marxist, to be socialist, you and I have to deny God and his existence, and his design. You have to deny what I'm calling the great delegation, that God alone has decided that you would have the authority that you have. But when he says, let us make man in our image, he says in the next verse, Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. Imagehood is not based on whether you're male or female. Both male and female bear God's image. Doesn't mean that God is hermaphroditic either. That's that's a misread there. The point is that as God's vicegerent or one marked out to rule in his place over his works, you have this high privilege of delegation, whatever has been entrusted to you. God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, over every living thing that moves on the earth. We have in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, the blueprint, the design criteria from the great engineer, what he has in mind when he makes mankind. No rhyme intended. What God has in mind when he makes mankind. What is God thinking? He has the work, Genesis 1, 1 through 25. And then he has the steward that he's going to entrust it to and he'll rule. 
in God's place. Now, this is the summary of the entire revelation of God concerning mankind and creation. He made us to rule over his works, and very quickly we rebelled against him and decided we would not rule over his works for him. We would become independent of him, and we would disregard what he had instructed us. That's the fall, Genesis 3. And the consequence of this is death, is the curse of the ground, is the hardship of what they call natural evil in the world in which we live. And it's also all the moral evil, all the wickedness of man, all the evil things that are done by men to men or by adults to children, which is, should be a raw nerve for all of us in our culture right now. We are in a very dark moment in American history morally with regard to the destruction of children. And those children are a stewardship. Told in Psalm 127, they're an inheritance from the Lord. What are kids? They're an inheritance from the Lord. Psalm 127.3. They're not a state experiment lab for the, uh, for, the, for the government to figure out how they can disregard God. They're a delegation from God to their parents. And how will you honor God in the hearts of your children. How will you honor God in their lives is the challenge of that particular and that particular stewardship. So the challenge I have for you today is to examine your life. Examine what you've been given to steward. What is the delegation God has entrusted to you? Have you recognized that as God's creature in his image, your responsibility of that stewardship is to rule it for him. Have you seen the way the delegation works? There's a mission and you didn't decide what it is. There's a morality and you don't define it. There's a direction your life's supposed to be going and you don't get to chart it. It's already laid out for you. That's all the ought and should of the morality of what God has said. The question is, do you recognize that that which has been entrusted to you is your stewardship for him? And do you not see that the actions that you take with what's been entrusted to you are your opportunity to worship him as you say, not as I will with this stewardship, but your will be done. That's how Jesus pioneered the Christian life. And that's the challenge that faces you and me every single day, every single moment of our lives. Not as I will, but as you will. You always have the choice to say no to God having his way. You always have the choice to say, not as God wills, but my will be done. And you often have a strong feeling, a strong urge to go that way. That's called lust. It is a product of your sinful nature. It is connected to your feelings and your responsibility as a believer in Jesus Christ, is to say no to your lust. You read about it in Romans chapter 8. If you are putting to death the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit, then you'll live. You walk according to the flesh, you must die. It's a walking, functional death to walk according to your sinful nature. It's complicated to be a human being in this phase of human history. It's going to get real simple real soon. 
there's coming a resurrection and the complication of the urge to sin will no longer be a struggle for you. If you think about it, when you die physically, it goes away too. There will be no urge to sin because your body will be in the ground. And if you're a believer in Christ, your soul and spirit will be in the presence of God forever and ever and ever. But the body won't be in the ground forever. It'll be resurrected and you'll be reunited to this body and it will inherit eternity and will be incorruptible. And that's the Christian promise of resurrection in Christ. Right now, it's pretty complicated. The challenge again, do you see the stewardship that God has entrusted to you? What Marx wants to do and those that follow him various presidents, for example, in American history, what they want to do is in denial of God say, how can you disregard your stewardship and look at someone else's and decide that that is what you're going to irrigate to yourself? The stewardship is God is God. I'm not what he's entrusted to me. I'll glorify him with. That's life. But if we deny God's existence and his distribution well, we can feel free to start coveting other people's property. And it's not about the material stuff. It's really not. It's about the immaterial creator who made it all and how we use our material to glorify him, whatever, whatever the stewardship is. God is sovereign, and that means he has the right to make all the decisions But I do not believe that authority means you determine all the outcomes. Authority means you have the right to say, don't eat from the tree of knowledge. Authority is the right to make the decision. And in terms of our dealings with God's sovereignty, we're talking about when he says, this is what I want. What does God want from you? Only the highest, the greatest, and the best. Do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled by means of God the Holy Spirit with the results that follow from this influence of the Spirit of God and what you say to one another and how you speak to God and in your songs and in your prayers, how you submit one to another, and then all the household, Ephesians 5.18 through 6.9. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with the same outcomes in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16 and, uh, and following there. 324. See what we're saying? What does God want for you? Nothing but the highest and the greatest and the best. Why do we fall short of it? Why don't we want the things for ourselves that God wants for us? Because we have a sinful nature and we don't feel like it. We're not in the word and it's not real to us. We're not being stewards of that which God has entrusted to us, not good stewards. You have a new spirit. We've been studying the riches of divine grace, the things God's done for you when you first trusted in Christ. You've received the Holy Spirit of God living in you as the earnest of the inheritance, the down payment, the first installment of all that you will receive forever and ever in Christ. You have God the Holy Spirit, and yet we will focus on what? Anything and every possible distraction but the things of God. And this mindset is very needful, more perhaps in your day-to-day life than you think. Because I believe that the comfort and the ease and the prosperity of the American project is going away. I say it with tears, I say it with heartbreak, but I think that we have so failed as a people 
to live our lives as stewards of that which God has entrusted to us, that we're throwing it away. The generations coming behind us are socialist in their thinking. They're atheistic and socialistic, and they're going to try to push this button and see if this works. Forget all the history lessons that we've learned about man's ruling over man unless there's a governmental structure that prevents this wickedness like our Byzantine-style constitution, our messy system of checks and balances that stops government from overstep. No, 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 let's get some direct action. And call the people that want to slow that down, we'll call them fascists. It's fascism that they're proposing. I think if you can't figure out Genesis 1 and what you are, then you have no chance at politics, ethics, government, because you've, you've forgotten what it's all about. And in, in your socialization, in your sociology, I should say, where you're trying to come up with atheistic theories to figure out how to redistribute everything, how to, be, how to make the big moves in the culture... The biblical view of sociology is you and me came to Christ by God's grace because someone shared the gospel with us and he set conditions where we believed that message that we received. And each one of us has done that in a different point, a different place, a different arrangement that God put together. And here we are in this institution called the local church. That's biblical sociology. In other words, it's one soul, one heart at a time oriented to the things of God. In the garden, man said no to God and therefore demonstrated his choice, his free agency, not to be a delegated responsibility, not to be a steward of what God had entrusted to him. The power to choose is one of these great stewardships. Your sex life is a stewardship that belongs to God, if you think about it. He made everything. He owns it all. He made it for his glory. What you do at work is a stewardship to God and how you conduct yourselves. You can read Colossians 3, right about 23, 24 on this. How do you relate to the boss at work? You serve the real boss and it blows the human boss away. What an efficient, hard worker you are because you're not working with eye service as men pleasers, but as God's bond servant. See, that everything in your life is a stewardship of God, including Tuesday. And what you do on Tuesday. And I believe that if uh, Christians in the United States who do not exercise their franchise, who do not vote when they have the opportunity and responsibility to participate in the government, that's how we participate in the election. If we don't vote, we are squandering part of the stewardship that God has given us in our particular expression. Not everybody can vote in the United States. Most people can't. They don't live here. They're not citizens of this, but you can. Well, my vote doesn't count. I've done the math. I'm in Connecticut. I'm in this county. Don't do that. The church doesn't show up. And it's not, and it's not right for us to say, well, God's sovereign. He's going to work it out. Yes, he is sovereign. And part of that sovereignty is his authority to say what he wants. And he has delegated to you the stewardships that you have. And your franchise, your citizenship is a big part of that in this experience. So if we pay our taxes, am I complicit in all the wickedness my government does with tax money? I'd say more so if I don't vote. More so if I vote toward that wickedness. 
And it isn't righteous just to go vote. It isn't an end in itself. You need to do the right thing in your voting. What's the right thing? Start with God. Everything that he made is his. He has delegated it down. It's a stewardship. That stewardship is entrusted to me in this instance. This is right and this is wrong. We have a biblical worldview. It's pretty straightforward. God said not to eat, as we said last hour. This was his right as the authority. And it, I contend it wasn't this, this particular fruit has magical properties to give you the knowledge of good and evil. It is that God said that one's off limits. And when they transgressed that authority, that was the beginning of the knowledge of evil for man. He knew God and now he knows evil because the evil is the transgression of God's sovereignty. Man did not cancel God's sovereignty. Man transgressed it. That's what sin is. It is the transgression of God's sovereign right, which aligns directly with his perfect righteousness and his infinite goodness. God did not sin in the Garden of Eden. He did not cause sin. He delegated to man the responsibility to walk with him in obedience. And that is a stewardship. Man forsook it. And the most amazing thing in Genesis 3 is that the serpent is a creature under the humans. And the woman is a wife of the husband. Paul tells us the wife is the body and the husband is the head in that arrangement. It's exactly backwards. The serpent says eat. The woman who should rule over the serpent eats because the serpent said to. The woman gives the fruit to the man. She's supposed to do what the man says or, or there's a relationship there of authority. Nope, he takes from her and obeys her. It's directly upside down in Genesis 3. We know how we got here. We know what the cause is. Man used his delegated power of decision-making for his person to make the wrong decision. I'm not going to show you that twice. Pardon the sliding there. We have this stewardship of volition, of decision-making. We have to if we're going to rule in God's place as God's image-bearer, as his delegated representative. This is the origin of evil in the universe as far as we know. It is man saying, or it's, it's the creature before man, saying, I'm not going to submit to my creator. I will have my own way. I will, I will, I will five times in Isaiah 14. And I know the revisionist interpretation is that we're not talking about Satan in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, but I dogmatically insist that we are. Satan is the power behind the rulers addressed there. How do we get to this place? We simply said, in my heart there's no God. In the moment I'm not thinking of him. And so I'm not looking at the chain of responsibility that this decision I'm about to make carries. There is a right choice to make. And I need to figure out what that is. And I'm not blazing a trail of new reality that I'm carving for myself, even though my sin nature suggests that I am. No, this is a bounded situation and there is a right and a wrong. And God allows me the freedom, the responsibility, the stewardship of honoring him with my choice. I call this the great delegation. All human government is delegated 
And every governmental structure starts at the individual level. This is the interesting thing about monarchies. If you have a monarchy, then one person, as a steward of himself, is also a steward of the entire government. He's got to manage himself because he's got to manage the government. David is an interesting case study. He can't handle himself when Bathsheba's on the roof. And the reason he's not managing himself well is because he's out of place. He's not on mission, not doing his duty. In the summer when kings went out to war, David was up on his roof. The troops are out in the field, but their leader isn't. And you have the destruction of David's household, and the nation suffers horribly for it. All government is individual self-government. And this is as close as I'll get to politics. Start looking at the individuals we're looking at. Just look. Right? They're, they're all <laughs> broken, sinful, flawed people. And there's not very many statesmen that are saying, this is not about gaining my personal power or my personal wealth or building my many houses or whatever. This is about the right thing for the right reason is a virtuous move because it's a delegation from the righteous God. And he'll reward me when he brings his reward. It's a tough thing you can imagine in this world we live in for a person in government to disregard the world and just look at the creator and say, because of who you are, I make this choice. Regardless of, regardless of the, the lobbyist money that's out there or whatever the bribes are. It's all corrupt all the time. And by the way, it's not our system that's corrupt. It's the people. Corrupt people are trying to tear down our system, which isn't the problem, to fit better their understanding of how the system should work. And they're going to end up with a more corrupt system that's more infected or infested by the corruptions of the people running it. It's amazing what we're in store for, I think. I believe this delegation of self-government begins with you and your choices. God requires you. It's not a, a charade. Determinists will say you're in a charade, that your decisions are not real decisions. God already made those decisions, and you're just like in a simulation carrying them out without volition. That's not your experience. It's not what the scriptures teach. It's not reality. It's philosophy that someone brings and superimposes on the Bible. You are, in a mysterious way that I don't pretend to understand, a responsible agent with the capacity to make choices. We all are. It's a stewardship. It's a sacred trust. It's a delegation over whatever's been entrusted to you. You know one of the things that's entrusted to you? It's, I'm coming to terms with this. I think we all have to. The hardships that God gives us are a stewardship. God, why'd you give me this hardship? Why indeed? Everything, every animal that he brought to the man to see what he'd name it, that, that was its name. There's a stewardship. God gave man the animals and we named them. Adam named them. Everything he brings to me is a stewardship. Husbands and wives. Wives and husbands. It's a stewardship. There's a right approach. There's a God-given approach. And he doesn't force me to make these choices. He sets me up in conditions where the choice is clear. His word is, is, is absolutely certain. And I can either say yes or no. Divine institutions, marriage. We call it divine institutions because they're instituted delegations of God's authority. 
There's a top-down thing from God who made it all and owns it all. He gets to make the decisions, and he's delegated these structures. Husbands and wives. You can read about it, in, for example, very clearly in Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. Marriage. Marriage produces babies, and children are not an inheritance from the state for you to, to raise for them so that eventually they can come become uh, successful participants in the body politic. That's not the Bible's presentation. Children are inheritance to their parents. Children are a gift from God to their families. And the stewardship involved is the most sacred of all. Because you're evangelizing and discipling. You're Deuteronomy 6-5-ing your kids to glorify God for multi-generational impact. Civil government. We're going to vote Tuesday. If you need a ride, ask anybody that you think has wheels, we'll take you. Nobody here who has the franchise needs to forsake it. Nobody in the hearing of my voice with the franchise, no, well, it doesn't matter, I'm in Texas, or it doesn't matter, I'm in Florida, you know, my, vote. You have no other recourse, you have no other say. Then we can speak freely about our opinion of what's going on, well, freely to a point, right? As that's being encroached on. It's a stewardship that God has given you. And we can look scripturally at how the stewards are managing the resources and say they've enslaved successive generations with an enslavement and debt that can never seemingly be repaid. They're, they're, our kids, we and our kids are debt slaves if we're part of this system. It's horrific what's being done as the stewardship. We can tell the truth about it. You've got the nation state, which is distinct from civil government. God actually divided the nations out. We didn't come up with this. It's not an evolutionary invention of sociology, despite what they, they'll teach you in civics class. The nation or state has been going on since people divided over languages and families in Genesis chapter 11. And then, of course, God does institute, sustain, and at times close, the local church. The local church is an actual thing in 1 Corinthians, for example, chapter 5. There is no place to turn the man over to Satan unless there is an inside or outside of the local church. Inside the circle of a local church is the representation of Jesus Christ and the honoring of him with our lives. And nobody here is resurrected, and nobody's perfect, but we don't change the standard because of our circumstances or our feelings or our culture. We say this is God's word, and we live it. And Paul says, if you don't, you're arrogant. Oh, we're so gracious. No, you're not. You're arrogant, and you should be mourning in 1 Corinthians 5, a very clear place. Because to remove someone from the divine institution of local church is to turn them over to Satan for their correction, for their destruction and eventual uh, salvation. There is no question that the local church is a divine institution. The problem is the universal church is not. There is no organized universal church, not yet. We'll all meet together with the Lord in the clouds and so will we ever be with the Lord and that's where we get parsed out for the organization and administration of the kingdom. But until that time, there is no universal organized church or as they would call it, visible church. The ecumenical movement is all washed up. It's just local congregational church. That's the only thing we find in God's revelation of the New Testament. Even in Revelation 2 and 3, it's local churches. 
I think that God made you and me, according to Genesis 1, to be his proxy, his representative. All self-determination for man is under the umbrella of God's authority, statics, and dynamics. He's over, we're under, but he shows you the example and says, this is the way, go my way, as I've shown you several times. The grand narrative of this story that we're living in and it revealed in the Bible is about man as God's delegate failing to rule under his authority and then getting it right as the last Adam. There will be a man who in perfect righteousness carries out the will of the Father. And that will be righteous government. Creation, fall, redemption is the story that we're in and we're still waiting for that redemption. I want you to remember the theme verse of our study of God and government. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Please vote. But please don't be super disappointed when you get your way in the electoral results, but you don't get your way in the government results. We really need to take all those hopes that we're putting in any political movement, any political person, and we need to, we need to put them those hopes where they belong, on the grace that will be revealed, brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Father, thank you so much for your word, for the challenge your word brings to us every moment of our lives because we're struggling against our sinful nature. Thank you for Paul's clarity when he said that we have a stewardship and that you've given us the Holy Spirit and that life is putting to death the deeds of the body by means of the Holy Spirit. That walking according to the flesh is death and this is a choice we constantly have to make. Father, thank you that you've brought to our attention the clarity of Jesus Christ who died for our sins and rose from the dead. In that clarity, we have our only hope. Let us be those people focused as we should be on the hope that's coming, on the joy that's coming in Christ and his coming kingdom, even as we walk in this world, in this present darkness, in this world in which Jesus rightly said this kingdom, his, world, his kingdom is not of this world. Let us represent you and govern our lives accordingly in anticipation of this coming of your son. We ask in Jesus' name. We all said, amen. amen.